Open with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I uh, want to thank again those who are on the live stream with us this morning and remind you that it is a communion service this morning. And so if you don't have some elements, some juice, and some bread, maybe now would be a good time to run quick and get that so you'll be ready to, ready to celebrate the meal that Jesus gave us in just a little bit later. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Jesus by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you dependent, declaring our dependency. We need your Holy Spirit here this morning, Father. Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always pleasing to you? Oh God, my rock and my salvation. And all God's people said, amen. It's a Thursday afternoon. And while the air is crisp and clear on this February day, the sun brightly shining makes it warmer than the temperature gauge would suggest. You're grateful for the beauty of the day as you sit with a new friend at Cafe Dawn. She's recently been coming to church with you, listening keenly, taking it all in, the people, the worship, the preaching. And she's been asking a lot of questions. It's, it's why you're now having a cup of coffee together. And after the small talk has died down and a pause of apparent reflection starts to come across her face, she appears to take a deep breath of courage to ask you a question. What does God think of me? Huh, that's a really good question. That's a really important question. What does God think of us? What, what exactly is the heart of God for us? How will you explain it to her? You know, maybe after the time that we've spent in Romans thus far and all of Paul's writing and argument from chapter one all the way through the end of chapter four, maybe your answer would be that the heart of God is to 
justify sinners by the means of their faith, making them right with himself. That is the heart of God for you, a legal declaration of right standing with him. I I mean, it's true, and it's so incredibly necessary But if that were all God were up to, to to act as a judge figuring out a way to make a criminal right in the system so that she could go free and not worry about wrath and punishment, it just seems, I don't know, just a bit incomplete. I mean, one might be bold enough to say, made right for what? To what end? What happens after that? Well, thankfully, Paul didn't end his letter at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He has more to say because there's more to say. Being made right, justification, is not the end of the story. In fact, in a very real sense, it's just the beginning. So we find ourselves this morning at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... What, Paul? (laughs) What? If we were to think of justification by faith as a tree with many branches, what we would find in its bows here in this packed paragraph are the fruits of our justification. We find some answers to what our justification is for, what it, where it leads, what follows it. And at the same time, as we see all the fruit of that justification we discover the heart of God for us and what he thinks of us. So this is a really, really important paragraph in your life, friend. It is absolutely dripping with intimacy and joy because Paul's focus is on a justified sinner and his relationship, her relationship to a justifying God. And there is something so very important to note. So everybody look at me right now because there's something incredibly important to note in this paragraph. There is not one exhortation in this paragraph. There is not one command in this paragraph. Paul wants you to rest and receive what God has purchased for you in Christ this morning. Okay? So are you... Are you ready to receive and not do? Okay, everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. All right, so just kind of, you know, just do a little, do a little shake. Like, let's just kind of, can we just, like, let's let, get the tension out, whatever that is for you. Like, if it's a little bit of these, if it's a jumping jack, whatever. You're not moving. Get the, te- get the tension out. All right, sit back down. All right, scooch. Scooch back deep in that chair. And can we all just, okay, we're going to take a deep breath together. Okay, cleansing breath. You're not working today. This is a time of rest right here. A time for you to receive something that you can hope in. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we all know what it's like to have been in conflict with someone. Ever been in conflict with someone? Oftentimes, such human conflict carries with it anger, resentment, and bitterness. A state of coldness forms between the combatants. Few words are shared, and and if they are, they're icy and cold and quick. Maybe you're like me. I hate when that happens. (laughs) I hate being in conflict with another person. I absolutely hate it. Especially, and it's worse when it's someone closer to you, right? Like the closer it is, the worse the conflict is. I hate when there is a state of detente between me and my wife. Like if we get in conflict, that lasts about three seconds, Like, I will walk out, I'm like all in a huff, and then I'm like, oh, please, please, please take me back. I'm so sorry. I did that again. I'm so stupid. Why? 
Forgive me. I don't like being at war. I want it resolved. I want the hostilities to end so it can be at peace. And doesn't it feel good when you do? Oh, it feels so good. When she's like, okay, you dunderhead. Yes, I forgive you. I love you. Okay, can you hug me though? (laughs) Yes, I'll give you a hug. Have a little kiss. Feels good when things are okay when you've been in conflict with someone, doesn't it? Really good. You see, that's what happens after we are justified. We are at peace, at peace with God. And note closely exactly the preposition Paul uses here. Friends, every word in the Bible is important. Every word. It's not an accident that he uses with God. We're at peace with God. It's not that we have peace in God. Somebody says here, the Bible talks about that kind of peace often enough, beginning all the way back in the garden at the very beginning of humanity's relationship with him. Shalom and wholeness and health and happiness, peace. The way things were, the way that things were always supposed to be back in the garden, serenity and delight, that is peace in God. But what Paul is talking about here is peace with God, which follows right from his description that he's been giving us over the last three chapters. We were in sin. We were in open hostility and rebellion against God. We were at war with him, a very much non-peace situation. His righteous wrath aimed at and pouring out upon us, culminating in a day of judgment and wrath to come. But justified by faith, we have peace. (laughs) The war is over. The celebration of the triumph and victory of our faith can now commence in the peacetime of our reconciled relationship with the creator, God. A peace made possible, and this is so important, do not miss this, a peace made possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that there is peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. Now before we move on to the next fruit of our justification, I want you to to note something else about this peace that we have with God. I think that if we, as the sinners that we are, think about that, think about the sinner that you are, are able to have peace with God, I believe an implication of that is that we are thus able to have peace with each other because of, through, and in our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe the reality for someone here today is that there is an active situation of hostility and enmity between you and another person. Maybe that other person lives in our small town. Maybe that other person is a part of this church family. Maybe that other person is in this service with you today. Don't you think, seeing what you see here, that because of the death of Jesus Christ, you as a sinner have peace and have been reconciled in your relationship to God, don't you think it's possible that you can be reconciled to that other person because of Jesus? Jesus felt that peace with each other was so important to proper worship of God. Worship, coming into a place and a space like this that he said this, So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. Don't go in there and think you can worship with an unreconciled relationship. Go get that right. Then come and offer your gift. That's how Paul's going to say elsewhere, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. All right. 
if we really consider and soak and revel in this, we'd probably find that justification and peace were enough. If we just thought about being justified and having peace with God, we could probably end there and go, that's a pretty good life. That's a good deal that I got in Jesus. But our Father is so much more generous than even that through Jesus. Verse 2, we have also obtained access through Jesus by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So first, access into grace. I can remember a while ago, um, I received this, this pass to go to a concert. Had a big lanyard and there was this big pass and it said, all access. It was so cool. You guys, I like, I walked in the venue. I got to go wherever I wanted. Like I went into the VIP room where they had all this catered food. I got to go back to the soundboard and talk to the sound people. I even got to go in, you know how they call it the green room? I got to go in the green room where the artists were and hang out with them and talk with them and pray with them. All access. Wherever I wanted to go. Our justification by grace grants us access to but the word being used here doesn't imply any initiative or effort necessary on our part to be granted this access, right? It's in by works. Rather, think of it like an introduction into a very special place, a place that we were previously unfit to enter on our own, right? Like if you didn't imagine if I just tried to do that to like, I forget, what's the, what's the name of the big stadium in Denver where they have all the concerts? I can't remember. Just Ball Ball Arena. So imagine if I just like walked in, tried to get into the green room without the all access. What would happen? Security, (laughs) right? I'd be ushered right out. If it were not for Jesus, I would not be able to stand in the sphere of God's grace. I would be ushered out, refused entry, But because of Jesus, I get to go into the green room of justification. And the sphere of his grace where the warm, enveloping space of his favor washes over me with his esteem, his benevolence, his kindness, and his approval. That's what it means to stand in the sphere of God's grace. I am absolutely accepted and fully approved and unconditionally loved. And the one doing the introducing, the one who got me there, to stand in that place of grace, never to be removed, never to be kicked out, never to have our access revoked. Which in part, happens because of the one who brought us there, whose name is Jesus. Okay, can you take another breath and let that sink in? (laughs) Wow. I almost want to, like, sometimes I wish you could put up with me for like an hour because then we could just stop for five minutes here and we could just pray and just say, would you help us really understand that we have access into a place of grace like that and we always are standing there wherever we're standing. It just takes more time. Please do that later. So let's review. We've been justified, made right by faith. That is a glorious action of God in our past. Okay, I want you to see the past, present, and future experience of being a child of God. We were made right in the past. As a result, we have a present peace with God and access into his grace in which we will always stand. And it comes as no surprise, therefore, for Paul to talk a bit about our future. Namely, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And we're familiar with that word. If, we've, if you've been here for this series, right, you're familiar with that word, boasting. We've heard Paul talk about it before quite negatively. He's argued with no small amount of passion and conviction that all boasting in anything that we can do to get into God is excluded, right? Chapter 3, verse 27. It is shut out. 
has no place here. There's no place for boasting. So why in the world is he saying now we boast? Paul, you just said that was a really bad activity and now you say we boast? Well, apparently for Paul, boasting can have a positive nature to it. It can mean a kind of arrogance or self-advertisement, and that's certainly distasteful, but it can also refer to a right kind of confidence when it comes to someone's present and future. A settled assurance and joy about what is already here and is still coming in this sense It means, this word means for Paul, rejoicing or celebrating, which is actually how some translations translate it. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We celebrate the hope of the glory of God, which is what Paul wants those made right in the past by God, by faith, who have peace in the present and have gained access into grace. He wants you now to celebrate in your hope in the coming glory of God. God, which means when you hear that sentence, you should ask some questions like, what is hope and what is glory? Because I want to do that. I want to celebrate. Seems like I've already got some reasons to celebrate, but what, how is hope a thing to celebrate? John Stott, Christian hope is not uncertain, like our ordinary everyday hopes about the weather or our health. It is a joyful and confident expectation which rests on the promises of God as we saw in the case of Abraham. Do you see how brilliant Paul is to have given us all of that, that we've come out of these texts? Like, okay, you promise things and you keep your promises and you do that work. And so I can hope what's coming, can hope for that because you've been sure in my past been faithful and in this way hope while it provides present benefits in that way has mainly a future orientation and so we ask what is our hope aimed at if I'm hoping for something what am I hoping for and Paul says I hope for the glory of God that's the content of our hope as disciples of Jesus and it's not a bad thing okay it's not a bad thing to ask God questions, family, okay? Like, it's not bad to say. I think we get afraid to say questions like this. How is hope good for me? <laughs> like, is there, good, is there good stuff there? Because I like good stuff. I like presents on Christmas and like getting kind of what I want. Like, how's hope good? How's it worth celebrating? Well, to answer that question, You have to read ahead in Romans. Am I sounding like a broken record? And if you have read ahead in Romans, then you may already know the answer to this question because here's the beautiful thing, y'all. Here's what's gonna happen, okay? So chapter five, verses one to 11 is this amazing packed paragraph and we're gonna have one sermon on it right now. But in essence, Paul's gonna preach an entire sermon on it in Romans eight. And that's really the beautiful thing about the Bible. The best commentary of the Bible is the Bible. And so when you go to Romans eight, he's gonna answer all these questions about what the glory of God is. And so now I'm giving you the frame like read five through eight over and over again the next few weeks because that's the next big chunk of what Paul is doing here. So you give us one to 11 and then 12 all the way to the end of chapter seven is one thing and he's gonna come back to these themes that he gave us in one to 11 in chapter eight. But let's go there for a second now so we can see right now What is this glory? Verse 18 of chapter eight, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Verse 21, that the creation, so this is a little bit of that glory, that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children, his children, verse 30, whom he predestined and he's also called and whom he called, he will justify and those he justified, he has glorified, past tense. So there is a kind of glorification that's already happening in our lives. That didn't hit me actually until just this morning when I read that text in my notes. There is a past tense 
kind of glorification. So there's some kind of transformation that's already happening in me that I'm tasting of what is yet to come more fully, which Paul will talk about in Colossians 1.27. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh man, (laughs) I just want to spontaneously combust right now. Like, this is just so good, right? Like, so the hope is everything that's coming and it's going to be true for us and this, this creation set free and released from all of its decay and death. And can you just imagine it? So you see how hope has this kind of present facet as well as a future orientation because when I think about that, here's what hope is meant to do. When I think about my glorious reality in the future, it's meant to change my present. where the sufferings of this time, see, here's what our glorious future holds for us. The sufferings of this time ended. The creation presently groaning under sin, decay, and death, freed. Those of us who have been justified, glorified with new eternal bodies and a new heavens and new earth where we will dwell with all of God's other children and their new bodies in a place of dazzling beauty and delight, never to sin again, never to be in conflict again, restored to what we were always intended to be, ruling with God over all creation under the rule of Christ, always in God's glorious presence. That is the hope of glory. (gasps) Oh, you should be amening right now. Get that in your mind. Think about your future. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Ponder it. Paint paintings of it. Sing songs about it. Write poetry. Celebrate. (laughs) We ought to have some really great Sunday lunches around Grace Church households. When we come in and we hear this stuff, we just go home like... Oh man, it's good now, but it's going to get better. And not only that, (laughs) there's more? Verse 3. And not only that, but we also boast, we rejoice, celebrate in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. His hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Huh. So we do all that kind of celebrating about the future and we also celebrate our afflictions. What a weird thing to say. I mean... Maybe some of us think here this morning, what a stupid thing to say. Can we be, I mean, we're family. Can we be honest with each other? It feels that way, right? If we're honest, that doesn't seem helpful. Celebrate our afflictions. I'm really grateful that Paul deals with things head on. <coughs> that he's re- like, he, he's human. He deals with our humanity. He knows, he knows that an apparent and real obstacle to our past being made right and our present tense promise of peace and grace and our future hope, an obstacle to that will be the present sufferings that we experience along the way to the hope of glory because these realities seem contradictory. If all the former things are true of us with God, all those things he said so far Why would we suffer? Why would he let us, having done all he's already done for us and given what he is promising to give us, and how on earth are we supposed to celebrate and rejoice in suffering? I mean, come on, Paul. And we need to be so, so, so careful with this text, family and others like it. Romans 8.28, anyone? God works all things together for good. We must be clear. We must be clear 
on exactly what Paul is saying and so careful in how we quote it or apply it to ourselves or others. We have families going through really hard stuff. In this church, that it just breaks my heart. Like it hurts when you really love someone, right? Like you feel that for them. I mean like severe suffering. Like long-term, crushing suffering. And they don't need us to carelessly apply texts like these. We gotta be so careful because sometimes if we're honest in our humanity, it doesn't feel like we can sing it is well with my soul. It doesn't feel that way sometimes, right? It doesn't feel well right now, God. So we gotta be careful about applying what Paul is proclaiming here. And yet... What we all need in our suffering is what Paul is proclaiming here. Because it's true, and therefore it's so very helpful. What he's saying here is true. We rejoice in our affliction. Now here's the thing. I am not going to preach a whole sermon on this. I was so tempted to break this sermon into two sermons and preach a whole sermon on this. But it was Paul And what he's arguing in this text that kept me from doing that because it's actually not his focus in this text. Suffering is not his focus. We're going to get there. I am going to preach sermons on suffering in Romans 8. We're going to get there, so read ahead. But right now, he simply needs to deal with it as an obstacle to you understanding that you have peace and you're standing in grace and you have a hope in the glory of God. So he's got to deal with the reality of suffering. And as he does, there's something so critical that we can learn from Paul and how we contemplate and address suffering in our lives. If we pay very close attention to what he's saying, because he's pointing out that it is possible for us to rejoice in the midst of our suffering, but not in our suffering. Do you see the difference? You see, when someone is in suffering, in that moment, we're not supposed to think, or good heavens, we are certainly not supposed to say to them, Hey, you should rejoice in that particular suffering because, you know, it produces patience and character and hope. You know, the cancer is good. The paralysis is good. The job loss is good because Paul said it's working out all things for good. But that goes too far. We have to be so careful not to intentionally or unintentionally be found praising God for whatever the particular type of suffering is in itself because God hates those things. They are not a part of his original creation and someday he is going to eradicate all sources and forms of suffering in this world. He hates those things and I hate them too and I wish they were gone. And we're not a part of our lives. And I don't think it's neat or wonderful to go through them for anyone. I hate the causes of suffering. I despise them and it breaks my heart to see people suffering. And I long for all suffering to end in this world. And I believe that God does too. But until he does that, until he ends suffering... His apostle calls on us to rejoice in the midst of suffering and even rejoice because of suffering. Because, and and Paul has extensive firsthand knowledge of this. Read his list in Corinthians, his stories in Acts, because Paul knows, and we do too, what God can accomplish in the midst of our suffering. God can produce endurance or, or better patience. The word that Paul uses here conveys not so much a pressing ahead in adversity as simply staying put without dismay. That's different, isn't it? 
I'm just going to stay put and try not to be swallowed up in despair. And that kind of patience bears the fruit of character, a kind of person who's been tested and tried and refined by suffering, like Peter writes about gold, that all the dross is removed and there's this purity and this beauty that's left after the fires of trial come. Paul's talking about a slow build in the life and soul of a person that results in a far deeper and more sure hope. And that kind of hope will not disappoint us. It will not literally put us to shame. In other words, when people see the suffering that we may be enduring as believers in God and they mock us for trusting in God in the midst of that suffering, think Job's wife, when they try to shame us, we won't be put to shame for trusting God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit who has been given to us at the moment of our being made alive and then being made right with God will actively and unceasingly, if we will believe it and open our hearts to it, pour out the love of God into our hearts so that in the midst of our suffering, we will experience the deep and lasting love of our Father. Let that sink in. God loves you. <laughs> Take a breath. God loves you. All the stories that I could tell of those in severe suffering who have felt closer to God in that place who have sensed more deeply his love than in any other place they've ever stood. Not every person. I get that. But maybe, and, and oh, we must say this carefully and we must say it without criticism and with only love and with a desire to help someone see and to get there. Maybe it is because in the midst of their suffering, they've lost sight of who God is for them. The darkness is crowding out the beauty and the glory and the light of God. And what we're supposed to do is carefully come in and start to peel back the layers of the darkness and say, he loves you. Even in this, he loves you and he's for you and he's fighting for you and he's not going to let you go and he's not going to abandon you and he's not going to walk away. Let that be our only message. Instead of trying to explain the suffering, don't try to explain the suffering. I, family, listen, I, I don't know why it works this way. I wish it didn't. But I trust my God. And I know he loves me. And I know he loves his children. And I know he won't desert us. And I know he's going to bring us through the wildernesses of all of our suffering into a promised land. That is my hope in the glory of God. Ted Weist in Trusting God in the Wilderness writes, God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. We may feel alone, but we aren't. He is leading us somewhere. And the journey is about deepening our dependence on him. Why? Because dependence is, in one sense, I would add, the promised land. Hear that clearly. A life of dependence is the truest, most real hope in our lives. Our hope is in Him, not some location outside of difficulty. That is such a beautiful sentence and such a pick and hard sentence. Our hope is in him, not in some location outside of difficulty. I so want it to be in a location outside of my difficulty. <laughs> Just get me outside of this. How can we be so sure that glory is coming? Because God loves us. And how can we be sure God loves us? because he's revealed it to us in two ways. The first you've already seen, his love will be poured out in a subjective experience of the Holy Spirit working on your heart. But his staggering, confusing, surprising, glorious, over-the-top love for us is seen most clearly and objectively in the cross of our Messiah, Jesus, Son of God. Coming to the end now. 
Chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves. Isn't that interesting? None of us would probably dare to say, prove it, God. But he does anyway. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved from him, through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. I'd like you to imagine three people. The first of these people is a, an in-the-right person. All the I's are dotted, all the T's are always crossed. The second of these people is a good person. Their rightness is, is warm. <laughs> like You like to be around them, just enveloped in their rightness. The third of these people is altogether different. They're ungodly, helpless, a sinner, an enemy of all that is right and good and true. They are wicked through and through. There is nothing attractive in them at all. It's the kind of person that you want to see punished. You want to see them get theirs. Now, it's pretty straightforward to admit that it would be rare for someone in our culture. We don't have a lot of people like throwing their lives down for other people these days. It would be rare for someone in our culture to die for the first person. They just don't make themselves very attractive for it. And it may be that someone would dare to die to lay down their life if it came to it for the second person. You feel inclined because of the kind of bloke that they are. But it would still be rare. But the third person? <laughs> no way. There is no chance any of us is laying down our lives for that third person. Now, imagine in our little scenario that you had a son. Just one son. A lot of us are parents here. You had a child who you loved very much. And consider this, right? As parents, we know this. Isn't it unusual how we are immediately bound when they get delivered? We are immediately bound to that child. There is a love that overcomes us and ties us to them in a way that is hard to even explain if you haven't had a child. Parents, are you with me? Like we love our kids and would do anything for them. And now imagine that you are being required to rescue not the first person and not the second person, but the third person, the ungodly, helpless, sinful enemy. And the only way that you can do this is to sacrifice the child that you love as much as you love. Get that vision in your head of your child. Being cruelly tortured bleeding out for hours. Can you imagine how you would feel? How that would tear your soul apart for that to happen for your child. Not, not for a Mother Teresa type of person, but an Adolf Hitler kind of person. Could you do that? Would you do that? Friends, we are the third person in this, in this scenario. And as we come to the end, still seeking to answer the question of that girl in the cafe, I hope you haven't forgotten about her, what does God think of me? Here we come to it. God proved that he loves us. We know the heart of God for us. We know what he thinks of us. We know that he sees us more clearly than anyone else can. He sees the depth and extent of our sin, past, present, and future. He sees our irreverence, unholiness, and profaneness, that we are altogether ungodly. And because of this, it is clear to him that we are enemies to his cause, revolutionaries against his kingdom, and rebels to his purposes. And he sees that we are helpless and that there is nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves to him. He sees that we are absolutely helpless. And so he moves towards us in love. 
He moves towards us because of love. He moves in action to prove his love as the party who has been wronged. And he initiates reconciliation and peace with us by offering his own son to die on a cross for us. While we were helpless, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, the Son of God died for us. If I, as an earthly father with merely human love, would deeply feel the pain of the sacrifice of my son, I ask you, family, to imagine the kind of unity between God the Father and God the Son. I know it's hard, but try and imagine how the Father felt at the physical and spiritual devastation that his son went through on the cross. And then wonder, what does God think of me? He loves you. Worship team, would you come up? And at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want to sing and reflect on this love for us this morning. I'm going to let you just sit. You don't have to sing along. Maybe you just want these words to wash over you and soak in how much God loves you and what he thinks of you this morning. If you want to, sing along with us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. His father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Behold the man upon a cross My sin upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from Him? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. So this is what we remember at this table, and it's why I like to talk about coming to the meal that Jesus gave us as a moment of gravity and gladness. Gravity and gladness because it's incredibly sobering what the Father and the Son conspired to do to save a wretch like me and like you. And it's incredibly joy-producing and confidence-invoking. 
And it's a moment of celebration where we look behind us and say, the sin is forgiven and taken care of and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And it does speak to the past, present, and future of the Christian, right? This is what Paul says in Romans 5. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in the past. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, we've been saved, will he now save us through Jesus from the wrath that is to come? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to get God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, will we be saved? Do you hear the promise? This table guarantees our future salvation. So I don't speak actually theologically correctly. I was saved on such and such a date. No, you weren't. You haven't been saved yet. You will be saved. <laughs> You've been justified. You've been given grace and peace and all the rest, but your salvation is coming. Your full salvation is yet to be. And this is the promise. This is the reminder. So we don't forget. You don't have to be a member of Grace Church. Elders who are serving or servers, would you come up? You don't have to be a member of Grace Church. All you have to do is simply trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of all of your sins and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you, even eternal life. That's all you have to do. You could do that right now. Jesus, I don't fully understand this, but I want it. I want to be a child. I want my sins forgiven. And this could be your first communion. So we're going to have that section go over to the side there, come around, grab a cup, and Bruce will serve you in this section. Come around this and then go back in and come around this way. Hold the elements until the end, and we're going to all take the elements together. You guys go that way, and that section goes over there, and come around to the tables. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ.